Today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is a little different than usual in that our guest is Joel Bergeron, who is not only a copywriter, but an expert in Web 3.0 and blockchain technology, something that we have to admit we didn't know much about before our interview, and maybe we still don't know that much about it after the interview. Uh, We've spent a lot of time asking Joel about blockchain and the opportunities that are there for copywriters in this emerging industry. Um, But how does a copywriter become an expert in blockchain? Joel's path is a bit serendipitous, going from the military to international development and disaster services, ultimately ending up where he is today. But we'll let him tell you how he got there. Before we jump into the interview with Joel... Uh, We've got an announcement. We have something coming up for you soon. On August 23rd, we're hosting two different masterclasses, um, three masterclasses, and we are really excited to hopefully see you there. Rob, can you just kind of tease the subject matter that we're going to be diving into? We call it flip the switch, and it really is about finding leverage in your business. And it, you know, anybody who's who's taken a physics class in high school or whatever, you know, there's this idea that um, a lever can help you move really big weights. Well, we apply that to a few things in your business, and there are certain levers that you can use to make progress a lot faster. Of course, as a copywriter, you can try to figure out all of this stuff on your own. You can go through the process trying to figure out like who your clients are, what kind of things they need to buy or will buy or how to price yourself so that that they'll say yes. You can figure that out on your own or we can show you how to use these levers to do that in your business too. So check out the masterclasses coming up. I think it's pretty good training. Yeah, it's great. So it's August 23rd. If you have any interest, you can jump into the link in our show notes and check out all the information and reserve your spot. So we hope to see you there. All right, let's get to our interview with Joel. I'm originally Canadian from a small town, uh, very, very small town, very rough town. And so at that time, there weren't many you know, opportunities uh, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I joined the army actually. Um, and I always had this thing of wanting to help. And so I was actually transferred to the military police, which was quite quite an interesting experience. Um, and then I spent about three or four years in the military. And then this was during Iraq and Afghanistan. So I was a little bit, you know, uncomfortable with that, obviously. And, you know, just what was happening, I, I just wasn't comfortable. So I ended up um, getting out actually, because they kept asking me to go overseas, overseas. And you know, you can only say no so many times before, you know, um, it affects you. So I ended up getting out and then I went back to school for international development and globalization in Ottawa. So I guess that, that thing again of like wanting to help, wanting to help change the world, wanting to do something great, I guess. And so international development was quite interesting. And then I worked in the international development sphere um, in disaster services, disaster management for about five years, mostly in Asia. And that was amazing as well. I was always traveling, really interesting work, but it was really, I got emotionally and spiritually burnt out, to say the least. I think if I was to sum it all up, it would be, you have all these NGOs with big hearts and awesome ideas, but really deep down, it's really like all NGOs are just band-aiding a systematic problem. So 
it's great that they're doing that, but I just got really burnt out where, you know, we can't keep doing this forever. Like we have to actually fix the problems with society, okay? And so I ended up getting out of international development and I was really lucky. I ended up getting hired randomly by a, a tech startup. And I don't know why they hired me. I think it was because of languages. <laughs> I had no experience in that at all. It was called broadband TV actually. And I was, think I was like the 18th or 20th hire. And then we ended up going to like 400 globally in a year, bought by a huge European company. It was amazing. So because of that experience, when I applied to other tech roles or other things, I was able to get some great roles. So I basically spent about eight years in uh, marketing and technology mostly. And I really, really enjoyed that. However, you know, I guess there's like two big life events that kind of steered me into you know the copywriting side of things. The first one was I was also getting a little bit <laughs> burnt out from marketing because I feel like with marketing, you know, you're you're doing everything for everyone, right? You're you're not really great at one thing, you know, you're just, you know, trying to pull it all together for the company and the goalpost is always moving, right? So you might hit your target and then there's always a new target, there's always a new sale, there's always a new product. And so I wanted to become really good at something. I wanted a vocation, if that makes sense, like a true vocation. And working in sales uh, in the technology sector I was also, and marketing, I was also doing a lot of writing. Um, and I noticed that I could write all day and it didn't drain me. And I, I really enjoyed that, writing sales materials. Um, it was fantastic, you know, writing you know, uh, sales pages for websites or web, website copy, this kind of thing. I didn't even consider it copy really. I was just like, oh, this is part of my job, right? And that was really, really the catalyst for me to really decide. It was about 37 where I, I just decided, yes, I want to do copywriting. I want to do it full time. I want to become a great writer. It's going to take some time. It's going to take, you know, lots of stuff. But I want to focus and, and really have that true vocation. So that's what steered me into copywriting. And I dove into it head first like I do everything. <laughs> so I read all the books. I took as many courses as I could. I joined the think tank. Yay. And yeah, it's, it's been really fantastic. And then I guess the second life event um, that kind of ties into that would be at the time that I was working in technology, I also um, was working at a valley, Indonesia. And this guy kept pestering me at the co-working space I was working at to come to this event, you know, this meetup at night. And I was like, oh, that's so annoying. And he kept asking me every day, something about Bitcoin, something about Bitcoin. And I was like, fine, I'll go to your thing, right? And so I went to this evening event. And I watched two Indonesian farmers be able to pay each other for the rice crop who had never had a bank account. And I just knew at that moment, like my mind was blown that this technology was going to change the world. And so this was way back, I think 2015. So just when things were starting really, really early, I think Bitcoin's price was like $20. Like I, I we used to play poker with Bitcoins, like six or seven Bitcoins to buy in. And it was, yeah, it was intense. And so after that event, I, I volunteered, I joined associations, I read all the books I could. And then because of our marketing and writing experience, I got hired by, you know, what we call blockchain or Web3 uh, technology companies. And I held uh, three senior roles in that. And that brings me to today, I think. <laughs> this is like the fast and furious, you know, part of my story. But it's, um, yeah, between the blockchain, crypto, Web3 stuff and the I guess the, the wanting to have a true vocation, those were just super important to me. Lots to cover, <laughs> lots to come back to. I, I started jotting down a few questions, but I wanna go back to what you were doing when you were doing disaster management, and we can kind of step forward through your career. I'm curious, some of the stuff that you were doing or dealing with, I mean, share maybe an experience from that, but more importantly, 
like what are the lessons that you took from those experiences that apply to marketing and copywriting and what you're doing today? I think in those roles, when there's a disaster, right, or something wrong, um, people get really raw and really real really quickly, right? There's no facade. There's no this kind of thing, right? And so spending that time really authentically directly with people like that over those years, I guess, just really got me in tune with emotions, I guess. And so for me, when I write or when I, when I start copywriting, I always think like, what's the, what's the emotion, right? What's the, the main emotion that's driving this, this piece of copy. And so I think that was a, a that was a really good example of how it affected my, my copies or my, or marketing as well. And I guess the second part of that would be NGOs don't have any money. <laughs> and so often they're like, Hey, Joel, I heard you know how to build websites. Or I know I heard you know how to you know this. And so I ended up doing a lot of that for them during that time. And so um, I learned a lot from that just doing it myself, right? Because they were, they lack resources, they lack people, they lack money. And so I ended up, you know, wearing all of the hats and uh, it was great, but, and I learned a lot as well. Yeah. I'm curious about your time in the military police. Last night I had a dream that I became a police officer. It's the only time I've ever had any connection to being a police officer. It's very exciting. I'm curious how that experience changed you if it did change you well and how how like jack reacher is it really because we all know jack reacher's a military cop right let's see i would say that you know i can say this being from a small town and i was kind of kind of from a rough family i'm not really close to my family at all and so my self-esteem back then was really low all i wanted to do was get out of my town i didn't care about anything else i didn't really have any plans or dreams you know i just wanted it in my town and so I actually didn't join the military police first. Um, I was, I just joined the infantry out of my, um, so I became a regular soldier. And I did that for about a year, the, the first year. And in that year, the army, how can I explain this? The army is like an elastic band. It takes it takes you and stretches you way out to places that you never thought you could go. And sure, you come back a little bit, but you always know, like, I can push myself a little harder. I can run a little longer. And that was really, really important. And then I guess the, the confidence thing of like, wow, I'm in charge of 10 people's lives <laughs> or, you know, really dangerous equipment or really um, interesting situations. And so in the military, you also do um, intelligence testing or sort of like vocational testing. And so I did those tests and that was when they wanted to transfer me to military police for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, and so I ended up, you know, doing school for that and doing courses. And so that, that was the transition into the military police for me. And during those courses, how do I say this? I also thought I was stupid because in high school, or I should say all school, I was just not there. I was, I was checked out, uh, bored, small town school, rough. Um, I just, I just thought I was stupid. I just, you know, assumed that. And then when I, when I started taking those courses in the military and was like top of my class, I was like, oh, I'm not stupid. I just, you know, I just need to be interested in this topic or I need to try or those kind of things. So I think those two things like happens often. Like I could be on a run with five people. And someone you know, is starting to quit. And I'm like, I can see it in their eyes. They've got an extra kilometer in them. But, you know, in the army, that you, you just know you can do that extra. And so those two things really helped me in sort of pushing boundaries, trying to, you know, trying to always do better, I guess. And, the, and just the self-confidence thing was a huge confidence boost for me. Learning about leadership, you know, going to leadership school, being in charge of people, um, being in charge of people's welfare, you know, that was... Um, that was a really, really like big catalyst for me, I guess, personally. Let's also talk just a little bit about some of the marketing roles that you held, you know, the catalyst to getting into marketing and uh, the kinds of things that you were doing there. The thing that I love hearing about 
your whole career, Joel, is it's it's kind of serendipitous. It's really broad. You know, you've obviously had a, a lot of experience, which is awesome if you're going to be a copywriter. But yeah, what were you doing in the marketing roles? You know, what were you building, creating, and even maybe like how did each role like connect to the next one? The first thing was I got hired by an international school in Vancouver, and it was the last family-run international ESL school in BC, or mostly in Canada, I should say. And when I um, took on their marketing, it was crazy because we were going against, you know, big, huge conglomerate, you know, schools, right? With 300 chains around the world, like Berlitz, you know? So we would go to, you know, a conference and these guys would say, oh, we're going to, you know, fly you guys, like for sales, they would you know, come in with a helicopter and fly them out and go skiing. And I, and I would come from the family run school going, oh, well, we made muffins, you know, kind of thing. And so it just was, it wasn't the same. And so I really, um, you know, it was like the uh, David and Goliath, right? It was just, I learned a lot about just measuring. Uh, I think you can't improve what you don't measure. And so I really learned about metrics and KPIs in that role because you're doing marketing in multiple languages, right? You're doing Korean, Japanese. You know, those were all of our markets, right? So you have to be great in all of them. So I would say that in that role, I, I just learned how to manage multiple campaigns, um, how to track all of that data, and then what to do with that data. So you could compare, you know, let's say Japan versus Korea, these kind of things, or which campaign is bringing you the most amount of students or, or leads and these kind of things. And so that was, a, that was huge. That was a really interesting role. Uh, you mentioned, you know, a couple of times when you were sharing your story about burnout, and that's definitely part of your story. And then we're also talking about how to push harder and kind of do that extra. So how does that translate to business? Like, how do we know when we ha can push harder or when we actually need to pause and slow down? Because I, I think it can be confusing and there are all these different messages around Oh. Yeah, that's super interesting indeed. There's a quote I like, life is a culmination of your intention and attention. So why you do things, your intention, and then your attention, what you pay attention to every day, right? And so for me, the intention is really important, right? So for example, you could say, um, I want to push myself harder so that I can close this month and get all those students and it'll be really great and we'll celebrate and all, you know, we'll be great, you know? Or the opposite of that, or another intention would be like, Oh, I got to keep my job. My boss is on me. Uh, I'm totally, you know, fear-based intention, right? And so those two things are completely, completely different. And I think it always reminds me to just remember, like, what's my intention here? Like, what am, what, why, why am I doing this? What's my why? And I think once you know that, then you can establish like whether you should push or not, and whether you shouldn't. Because I think a lot of my burnout was just doing things because I thought. I should, as opposed to what I wanted deep down or what I wanted inside. And I always did that 150%, I guess, because I was always the underdog growing up. So I always thought that I had to put in that extra, you know, hours or extra effort and things like that. And so, I, and unfortunately it was rewarded. So it was kind of like bad, um, bad training, right? Is uh, every company was like, oh, great. And you're awesome. And here's some more work and those kind of things. So, um, yeah. So while we're still walking through some of the career path stuff, Joel, uh, you mentioned a couple of places where you've been. You've kind of done the nomad thing, Canada, Asia. Uh, talk a little bit about that as well. You know, why did you go from place to place? What was the draw to, you know, not staying home? And where are you now? Yeah, great question. 
I guess I guess that ties into burnout too. Was um, I just realized that because I have that people pleasing and over delivering problem that I needed to work for myself. And so um, this was back in the day before people worked remotely, and and it was just the start of the digital nomad movement, like the concept that you could do your job or start a business, you know, uh, and work from wherever you wanted. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I really focused on building a lifestyle business, right? And so that enabled me to travel, experience different things. Um, and of course, um, it was very useful too, I guess, because you also had a community, right? The digital nomad community is quite strong. Everyone's, you know, has the same issues, the same challenges. Um, you know, you show up to a place and there's a co-working space and automatically you have a hundred friends. So, um, yeah, I think that was the big catalyst for me. Just the idea of I can work for myself on my own terms and, uh, and travel as well. And I know as you're talking about your story too, it sounds like you know, or at least you knew the times where you needed to pivot and look elsewhere and make that change. And it sounds like you're just really connected to your principles and knowing when this no longer works for me and I'm out. Is that something that just comes easily to you or is that challenging for you to make those decisions and pivot along the way? I would say one of the issues with life is sometimes it takes a long period for you to realize your loops or realize, you know, you know your, your behavior patterns, right? Once isn't a pattern, once is random, right? But then when it's happened three or four times, like when you hit 30 and you're like, hmm, this problem has happened a few times. And then I was like, well, the only common denominator is me. So, you know, this, I'm probably at least part of the problem. And I think, uh, I think that was really huge as well. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today. Blockchain, Web 3.0, like all of this stuff. I, I kind of feel like we almost maybe, at least I do, maybe our listeners are more dialed into this than I am, but kind of would like a primer on, you know, what, is blockchain? What is Web 3.0? Are they the same? How are they connected? How are they different from whatever it was that was Web 2.0? Like, let go and and just help us understand this world of blockchain and crypto and all of this stuff that everybody's talking about and supposedly getting rich doing. This is my favorite topic. I could talk about it for hours, so it's great. I'll, I'll try to give a little bit of an introduction, but for me, blockchain is, is a system of recording information. That's really it. It's a digital ledger that's stored on multiple places. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. So these are the kind of the tenets or the main core principles of what blockchain is. So first it's decentralized, which means all of that information isn't stored on one place. It's distributed, decentralized across all of the network. So I'll give you an example as Bitcoin. So with Bitcoin, every transaction is recorded and seen. So when a transaction happens, the network basically distributes that, uh, that transaction to all of the other nodes or all of the other people in that network. And they all agree. And so that decentralization where it's not in one place, the data means it can't be corrupted. It can't be hacked because you'd have to hack every one of those pieces of information on all of those computers, all of those things. And so that's a really important part of it. I mentioned transparent, right? So most people don't know, but the blockchain is super open. Like you can see every transaction that's ever happened from every wallet. Now there's not a name associated to those wallets, but it is transparent. So for example, a lot of people say that Bitcoin or other things is used for you know, money laundering or, or crime or things like that. And every police officer I know says Bitcoin was a dream. Now we can track the transactions. You know, USD in a duffel bag is so easy to 
to, to use in those kind of things. So um, the transparency is great for things like government applications or you know NGOs or these kind of things. Next one is immutable. So it can't be changed. And we kind of talked about that, right? Where it's cryptographically secured, which basically is just a fancy word for, you know, or fancy uh, way of saying that once that's all distributed to the network, it would take, you know, the most massive supercomputer ever thought of in order to crack that cryptographic code. And because there's so many people and so much hardware, uh, it just becomes impossible. So now we have this system uh, for humans that, you know, is immutable, that, that can't be changed. There can't be corruption. There can't be nepotism, all of these things, right? Um, the next is programmable. A lot of people um, don't realize this about blockchain. They think money or they think Bitcoin or they think how much is it worth. But there's actually a famous quote that's uh, the least interesting thing about Bitcoin is the price. And you could say that about any blockchain, actually, the least interesting thing. Because once you can program money or data, as I said right before, you can change the world. I'll give you an example. You could have a program where it says, let's say there's a farmer. And the farmer wants insurance. So basically, it could be programmed, if it doesn't rain for 30 days in this area of Ethiopia, pay the farmer 500 euros. And so that example is an example of um, the contract that happens on the blockchain. It calls that weather data from a government store or, let's say, a weather station, right? And once the weather or once that data says, yep, it meets that condition, like, yes, it, it, it definitely didn't rain uh, for 30 days, then that farmer would automatically receive, you know, that 500 euros. So bye-bye insurance, insurance industry, right? <laughs> um, it all happened without intervention. It all happened transparently. And it also happened um, securely. And so just that concept that you can program money is, is, is game-changing. In what ways do you feel like blockchain is misunderstood by people like me? Yeah, 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 fantastic. I think just going back to that quote that, you know, the price is the least interesting thing. Blockchain is going to change the world. When the internet first came out, we didn't have the internet, obviously. The adoption was really slow, but now we have the internet, obviously, right? And what blockchain can do in terms of programmable money, trustless things. I'll give some examples uh, in a few minutes, but what it can do is just fascinating and it will affect every industry, every location. It's, yeah, it's super fascinating. I think I'll give a couple of examples. So Uber is an example. Uber, I could build Uber on the blockchain. I could build my own app. I could say, if Joel goes from A to B, then pay this driver. Or when this person reaches this, this destination, uh, pay the driver. And so the location data, the person that's driving and the person that's calling, you have that regular side of, let's say, the Uber app. But the idea of no intermediaries, this is a really big philosophical thing of blockchain, is there's no one in the middle. So there's no visa in the middle taking fees. There's no owner of the Uber. Like you could just literally create another Uber and then put it out there in the world and it would never have to be created again. And so it's going to change a lot of things that way because when people don't like a company or they feel like they're not you know, getting a fair deal, it can probably be replicated on chain. That's something that I think is really interesting as well. So how is this different from web 3.0 or is it, is it a small part? Is it all of the part? What, how do the two work together? Yeah. Web three is sort of the umbrella term for all of this technology, but it really talks about the internet. So the internet is a highly centralized thing, right? You have, you know, you have to pay Vodafone or you have to, you know, there's servers put in places. Um, and even each individual um, company or, or a website on the internet is centralized. So I'll give you an example. Twitter, for example, you have an account with Twitter. 
if Twitter gets hacked, all of your data is gone because it's stored on their servers, right? So in Web3, that's that would be a Web2 example. In Web3, your information would not be on Twitter servers. It would be either sitting on your computer or decentralized. And they can call that data when they need it, right? To, you know, your birthday, for example, or, you know, these kind of things. Um, and you can also pull that information back at any time. You can say, nope, I don't want them to have this information anymore and pull it back. And so not only are you in control of your data, but you're also, you also have the ability to, you know, remove access at any time um, securely. And I, I, again, I gave that example before about Uber, the same thing with Twitter. This could all be done on chain as well. And so when things aren't centralized, this is a big part of it. Centralization usually creates problems, whether it's security, whether it's corruption. Whenever you put a lot of power or a lot of things in one place, there's always problems. So Web3 will be basically the decentralization of everything. So everything about the internet will be decentralized eventually. Okay, let's stop here for a couple minutes and talk about a few ideas that popped up for the two of us. So Rob, why don't you kick it off? There's so much, so much to discuss here. Yeah, I mean, as always. So I, I think, you know, we pointed it out kind of as we were talking with Joel, but just this idea of where copywriters come from. And it feels like we all have a different path. They're, you know, unlike doctors who go to medical school uh, and they all kind of have the same kind of training, copywriters come from all walks of life. And Joel's walk seems pretty interesting. But then as I was thinking about it, I'm like, I don't know that I know any copywriter who, or, or very few copywriters who are just like, ah, I want to be a copywriter. I mean, most of us start somewhere and end up here, but the, the advantages that that gives us and having all of these other ideas, experiences, um, you know, even, even case studies and projects that we've worked on helps make us better copywriters. And I think it's something that we should celebrate more. In fact, you know, as we talk with a lot of copywriters, people start out and they start saying, well, I'm a, I'm a beginner. Uh, you know, I'm, I can't charge a lot or, you know, I don't have a lot of experience, but the fact of the matter is most of us have a ton of experience. It's just not necessarily writing for our clients. It's, it's gathering up all of this other life experience that makes us better at what we do. Yeah. And that, that experience is so, so valuable. And, uh, and Joel's experience has played into how he's established himself as an expert in the space that he's in today. Uh, I also like that we were able to talk about just how to challenge ourselves, how to stretch ourselves, um, but where there may be a limit. And and I think Joel answered that question elegantly as far as how do we know when we should hit pause? How do we know when we're nearing burnout? Uh, I like the idea of stretching myself. I like his quote, you know, he said, the army is like an elastic band. It takes you and stretches you to way out to places that you never thought you could go. And I guess you could see that as a negative. I see it as a positive, as seeing what's possible for yourself. So I don't know. I was just brainstorming. I'm like, well, I'm not going to join the army uh, right now. Um, but then maybe there are other ways that I can stretch myself, right? I think parenting definitely can stretch you. Some sports, you know, definitely some more intensive sports can stretch you. Travel can stretch you. In entrepreneurship and what we're all doing can also stretch you in new ways. So I was just wondering what you thought about that part of the conversation. 
I think it's a great idea and I you know I really like that you're pulling this out because we do need to stretch outside of our comfort zones and there can be these external experiences like the army or something else that make us do that when we take on a new job you know that we can have a boss that pushes us but as entrepreneurs it sometimes it becomes a little bit harder for us to find this and so we need to go searching for it you know we need to find the mentor or the group or the person who can uh, help us stretch or if it's not you know, a coach or mentor, we need to find opportunities where we can learn and grow. And a lot of times we become really comfortable with where we're sitting now. And it, we're not doing it necessarily intentionally, but we're holding ourselves back from the bigger things we could be doing. Yeah. And then, and then when do we know when it's time to stop too? And so I think for me, I was trying to sort through that in my mind and just thinking through, well, if it's something that sacrifices sleep long-term, like I'm not going to push through that because that actually, I mean, there's research to prove how detrimental that is to your health long-term and can actually cut years off your life. So like I draw the line there. I draw the line if there's something where I'm stretching myself so it's so great, but it's actually straining and forcing me to sacrifice my relationships on a regular basis. Like I can't do that. So I guess I'm just trying to look for some parameters as far as like, what is the good stretch? What's the bad stretch? Um, how do you look at that, Rob, as far as like, when do you draw the line? You're like, okay, this is actually not a good stretch anymore. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've got a really good framework for that other than just to trust your gut, you know, and certainly there are times when it's like, oh, wait, I'm not growing the way that I want to. I need to do something to make that change. And then, then you can search for it. Or I'm completely overwhelmed and I need to pull back in some way. Right. So I think it's really just about trusting your gut. If your health starts to suffer, that's obviously a, a sign that something's you know, off with either how you're spending your time or maybe it's diet and exercise, sleep, like you pointed out. But we have those warning signs. We kind of know that they're coming. We just have to be smart enough to listen to uh, to our bodies and our brains when it gives us that signal. Yeah. And another great quote from Joel in this conversation, there are a bunch of great quotes, but one was, life is a culmination of your intention and attention. So why you do things, your intention and then your attention, what you pay attention to every single day. And that reminded me of a Seth Godin post. I think he emailed it out this week. So it was only a couple of days ago about really focusing on how we're spending our day. And even if we audited our day in six minute increments, what would we find? And oftentimes we find that how we're spending our time is not in line with how we say we want to spend our time or what we say we care about. And, um, and Seth Godin had a really great quote, you know, when we give away our day, we give away our future. And so that just has me thinking too about, I say I care about all these different issues, causes that are so important to me. But then when I look at my day to day, am I actually giving any time and giving my attention to those movements, those causes I care about? And sometimes it's it just doesn't line up. So I think that audit is really important. And, you know, you can use that audit in business too. If you say you need clients, but you look at your day, are you spending any time actually focused on landing clients? And it, may, it might not line up. Yeah, I think it's really important to do that and to think about it. But also uh, when we do that, oftentimes we'll, you know, it's like, oh, I am not giving the time that I need to this or that. Um, 
and to take a step back sometimes to say, okay, why am I spending the time that I'm spending doing the thing that I'm doing? And usually it's going to be because, well, I'm trying to, you know, make some money to support my family. And, you know, in my opinion, if that's not the highest cause, it's got to be close to it. And so, uh, yeah, obviously we've got to take care of home first, but assuming that that baseline is done, our calendars tell us what is important to us. And, you know, if you're, if you're able to spend a couple of hours going through Instagram or TikTok or, or whatever, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a disconnect there and there's maybe some opportunity to spend times on things that are maybe more important, whether it's a political cause, where it's a fan, whether it's family, whether it's growing your own skill set, there are all these kinds of things. And I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, about, um, stretching, uh, yeah. Instagram does not stretch me. It might entertain <laughs> me, but it certainly doesn't stretch me. Oh yeah. I guess it could stretch you, right? If you start doing, if you start putting yourself, you know, getting uncomfortable and like recording yourself doing something. Yeah. That's, that's creating, that's creating yeah. instead of consuming. Right. And yeah. most of us, that's most true. of us spend most of our time consuming. Yes. Consuming does not stretch anyone. I don't believe. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also was intrigued by um, when Joel was talking about his experience with the NGOs, the disaster services stuff. You know, he he mentioned that um, they didn't have a lot of money to pay, you know, and oftentimes that is the case. But the trade-off was that he had a ton of experience. He had opportunities to work on the kinds of projects that we don't usually get to work on when we're working for a higher paid client that has a staff of, you know, people that are doing all of these things. And, you know, it just got me thinking that oftentimes we're really down on those kinds of opportunities because they're not big money makers for us. But spending a bit of time doing something for a client that maybe doesn't have a lot of money, but has all these opportunities where you can make a difference, whether it's, you know, a, a, an NGO like what Joel was doing, or even, you know, a mom and pop uh, company or your own company, um, your own business, those opportunities are gold. And it really helps you grow and develop your career in a way that sometimes isn't easy when you've got great paying clients. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel glamorous or look glamorous when you're in a lot of those positions. But um, yeah, I mean, I came from the nonprofit space and the startup space before starting my own business. So I I definitely believe in that. It's, I'd rather be in a job where I'm learning a ton. I mean, it'd be nice to be in a job where you're well paid and you get to learn sure, a ton. Both, yeah. um, but sometimes it is tricky. And it's for me, it was worth that investment of taking a job that didn't pay well and having to take extra jobs, but you learn a ton and then you can channel that into the next part of your career. So yeah, sometimes it's worth it. You know, I just think we talked a little bit about metrics and, you know, Joel said you can't improve what you don't measure. And so that just, again, was a good reminder to me because I, I think it's important for measuring our client project success and we can start wherever we are today. I don't think, I think metrics can intimidate a lot of copywriters. It's intimidated me before where I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to use all these tools. Like this isn't my area of expertise. Uh, I'm just a creative, but we can start where we are today. And there's always some metrics you can pull in. Even when you start working with the client for the first time, you can ask them about some of their metrics. They know because they're the business owner, like they're tracking something. Um, and so you can ask them those questions to pull in their metrics, and then you can start to measure against it as you work with them to see, have you helped them increase traffic to their website or land more clients or grow their, their email list? All those things you can start, start to measure. So 
I think that's important. And then also as we're building our own teams, even if you're a team of one or a team of, you know, three to five people as copywriters, uh, tracking metrics is so important. And I know, Rob, this is something that's important to us with the Copywriter Club and something I think we can get better at too, just having those ongoing conversations to see, you know, what matters, what doesn't matter, and only track the metrics that actually matters too, and not the vanity, the vanity metrics. I think a lot of times when we talk about metrics, we think about, oh, I'm going to use this metric and I'm going to improve. So let's say, you know, I, I have an open rate that I want to improve, or I have a click-through rate that I want to improve, those kinds of things. And that that may be the most useful way to use them, but there's this all there's the other side too, where metrics show us where things aren't working so that we can fix them. You know, it's like, oh, nobody opened that email or nobody responded to that offer there's something wrong here. And if you don't ask those questions, and sometimes that, that feedback is painful, but if you don't get that, you can't improve. And maybe maybe this whole, this whole conversation is really about stretching ourselves into ways that maybe are uncomfortable and getting that kind of feedback is uncomfortable, but it allows us to, to do things differently. Are you speaking to me directly with that? No, that not, not, at, not at all. <laughs> maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm internalizing this. Like, oh, I need to get better at some things here. Yeah, no, I think you're, I mean, it. yeah, it hits for me because I'm like, yeah, I need to be less sensitive and just like take, you know, collect the metrics and look at what's really happening because you can't improve if you don't look at that. Let's go back to our interview with Joel and find out a little bit more about blockchain and what it's all about. So where are we in that process? Like it makes sense as you're speaking about it that we should decentralize, but where are these larger companies to larger companies, smaller companies, are they moving in that direction or most of them not there yet? We're so early. We're so, so, so early. Um, It will move fast, I think, but we're so early. Most people have only heard about the money side of things and they haven't heard about the idea or the concept of like decentralization or, or trustless interactions, right? Um, and so I think it will move quite quickly. One of the big problems right now is it's highly technical. It's not easy to use any sort of blockchain. And so when it's not easy to use, it's really hard to get everyone to get on board. Once they fix like the UI UX the interface that you're using for blockchain, and once they make it you know, as simple as your banking app or as simple as any app, that's, that's when you're, I think, gonna see real adoption move really, really quickly. Um, and I think in the corporate space, it'll just take a company that realizes like, wow, we can save millions of dollars using this, or we can track our entire supply chain you know, accurately and mutably and prove where, the, where that stuff went. And so they can not only you know, save money, but they can also upgrade every part of their, uh, of their business with it. And so, yeah, it's coming fast for sure. Um, but I think that's one of the challenges right now, holding people back. Um, and I guess the other thing, part of that, um, one of the challenges is, this goes into the philosophy as well as self-sovereign money. I'll give an example like Bitcoin, right? So you are in charge of your money. You have your own private wallet. You have your private keys, right? It's not at a, you know, it's not Visa. It's not your bank. You are in charge of your money. So if you make a mistake, for example, you send the money to the wrong address, it's gone. There's no calling customer service. There's no, you know, oops, no, take that back. It's done. And so that's a little scary for people, right? The concept of, I'm in control of my money. It's mine. Um, and there are some amazing benefits to that, which I'll talk about a little bit later um, on the philosophical side. But yeah, that's a, that's a huge problem right now as well. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking specifically that example, but even before when we're talking about uh, centralization, obviously there are 
there are some other risks in going to decentralization too, right? Uh, maybe there are some security risks because security isn't what it should be or could ultimately be. The example you just gave about you know making a mistake, sending somebody money and not being able to get it back. What are some of the other drawbacks, at least at this stage of where we are? I'm, I'm imagining like, yeah, you're tied to the power grid. So if the power's down, you don't have access to your wallet or, or whatever. Are there other things like that that, you know, maybe hold up adoption or, you know, us really wanting to get into it? Definitely, 100%. Uh, I would say uh, regulation. It's the biggest problem right now as well. Either you have to operate, you know, you feel like you're a criminal and you have to, you know, even companies are not sure what's going to happen with regulation. And so because there's no clear regulation, companies can't really act really strongly and neither can individuals. And so it's been a massive problem with the rules changing or government's not sure what to do. There's a lot of debate about what to do because you can't just take old finance laws and apply them to Bitcoin or any other digital currency. And so there is that debate. There's a debate about everything, right? In terms of you know moving moving that over. I would say that's that's another very very large problem right now is just the lack of clarity. Why should copywriters pay attention to this? Because I mean, you know, as as just anyone listening to this, it's worth paying attention to because this is how our society is shifting. But for copywriters especially, why is this important? Number one, I think it's a massive opportunity, obviously, right? It's, it's going to be the next, you know, it's, it's the next internet. So if you want to work in an exciting, you know, space that's just breaking out and make your name and do these kind of things, like in the blockchain space, if you have a year of experience, you're an expert, literally, or at least on that thing, right? Um, and so um, that's, that's some, just the massive opportunity, the massive capital that's going in to invest in, in blockchain and crypto. And then I would say on the other side of this, even if you're not interested or, or it's scary for you, I promise it's coming to your industry. Whatever your niche is, it will probably get there eventually. And so just being aware of it and just being, um, just know that it's coming, um, I think is, is really interesting as well. And being able to, you know, take complex, you know, topics and break them down very easily, um, is something copywriters are obviously really good at. And that's a struggle as well for, for all companies or, or all things. And I think lastly, um, in terms of opportunity, there's just a lack of talent, right? And so blockchain companies or Web3 companies do hire people with zero blockchain experience for sure, right? You need, you know, all of these marketers, all of these things. And then after a while of, you know, self-study or, or that kind of thing, um, you can really take off in your, in your career for sure. And so definitely people in Web2 can move to Web3 companies. Um, and it can be a massive opportunity, I think, there. Let's talk specifically about some of those opportunities. Obviously, as as copywriter or marketer, you've been doing some of this work, but are we talking like website rewrites, sales pages, emails? Like, is it the entire gambit? We just need copy for all of the things in as, as we translate, almost like digitization as, as people took regular businesses online, we had to create all these online assets that replicated what was offline. And, and are we basically recreating that stuff for, for web 3.0 or is it more of the same of what we've been doing? Yeah, I would say in general, it's all the same, but there are a few important pieces that I think that are great opportunities. Number one is most blockchain companies use what's called a white paper. The white paper becomes kind of like a pitch deck, but it's basically the explanation of their technology, why it's, you know, why it's going to change the world, what it is, what it does. And those are usually massive documents and they're used for everything from raising money to also, you know, when people are doing research on that company, the first thing I do or first thing most people do is download the white paper. Like I want to read the, the white paper there. And so those are obviously very well paid as well because they're long, intense. Some of the tech can be very, very technical. 
and it's all new as well. So I think that's one of the things is white papers and light papers are, are a really big opportunity. It's different. The second one I would say is technical writing. So for those that like to do technical writing or more technical writing, there's loads of it, everything from documenting, you know, what developers and coders are doing to just the, the documentation of their, their technology, creating how-tos, guides, videos, all of these kind of things. And then I think the complexity of it really makes you an asset because you're very hard to replace. So for example, if I work for a company for six months and I've really dove into their tech, you're not going to replace me. It's so hard, right? And so I also do that my way is if, if I'm going to invest, you know, my time, you know, the next three months with this company, I want to make sure that it's a great company and it's a good fit because you spend so much time you know, diving into the tech and, and why it's great. Oh, so many questions. I think I'm going to become a blockchain copywriter. I think this is going to be my new niche. Like you've convinced <laughs> me this is it. Do you find that a lot of these companies are hiring mostly in-house? Are they looking for contractors, freelancers? Is it a combination? Yeah, I think it's definitely a combination, but I would personally say most in-house because again, it goes back to, you know, someone who knows your tech, right? It's very hard to get a freelancer that Know, knows your stuff and then can come, come back and be reliable, right? And so, yeah, I would say it's mostly in-house for sure. Because I don't want to go in-house, you know? I'm like, how can I have this business? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm not ready to do that, but I want to do this. And then as a follow-up, you know, you talked about going in and, and working really closely with these companies. So as a copywriter, you want to make sure you believe in that company and your principles align with that company. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've done that? Because I also know from our conversations that that's also gone wrong for you. And I don't know how much you want to share about that, but what would you possibly do differently when you vet future companies? I would say, you know, I, I was recently just telling myself, like, don't be hard on yourself. But whenever you have an industry that's just throwing money at something, right, there's going to be issues for sure. Companies popping up overnight, something, something NFTs, right? Um, you're going to get shady companies. You're going to get get rich quick scams or things like that. And so the research is really, really important. I would say, again, the white paper, super important. Go through their tech. Is it actually, like, is it going to change the world? Like, is it going to change something? Or is you just taking something from web two and just replicating on chain, right? It's, it's uh, that I think if it solves a real world problem, amazing. And the more tangible that is, the better. The next thing is we're looking at the team. You know, who are they? Get on their LinkedIn, where have they worked? What have they done? Um, that's really important. I look at everyone from the CEO all the way down to developers. And I would say uh, the third thing you can do also, and this is a little bit more nerdy, but you can check GitHub which is the repository for where code is stored, right? And you can see how active they are, right? And if they're not active and they're like, we're launching in three weeks, like, mm, where's your thing? <laughs> where's what you created? And so that's another sort of underground way of really just looking how thorough that documentation is, how detailed. Um, that's an interesting one as well. But yeah, you can't always you know, prevent it, but I think those three things of just looking at the team, looking at the white paper, checking GitHub, um, Talking to as many people as you can, you know, interview them as hard as they interview you. And I think, you know, you can at least minimize your risks. Yeah. As you're talking about that too, it brings up another question, you know, aside from like learning about a particular company's tech and, and like the, the, the repositories in places like GitHub, how can a copywriter who wants to get into this space learn more about like the broader industry? What resources are out there that we can go to and say, okay, 
you know, I need to read this or I need to, you know, take this, you know, workshop or whatever so that I have that that foundational knowledge that then allows me to pick up the white paper and really understand what it's saying or go into the code repository at GitHub and actually understand, you know, the documentation that's there. Yeah, fantastic. I think, well, good news, bad news. The good news is there's a lot of free resources out there. YouTube, you know, there are things like that. But it's so early that there's not many, like, professional training courses or books. And I would be very wary of anyone who's selling that right now. I would say my biggest suggestion is pick the basics of blockchain, the really, really basics, and know that really well. Because once you know the basics of what a blockchain is, what it does, you basically understand the, at least the... the the majority of the other things. I think that's um, that's really important, and you can do that in a variety of ways. Um, but once you've got that foundation down, I think that's that's a really good start. I think the second thing is um, the culture of the industry. I think looking into that um, is is interesting as well. A lot of people that got into blockchain got into it because they want to change the world, or they're angry at the government, or they uh, they think things are unfair, things like this, right? So. There's a lot of philosophy or there's a lot of um, this, you know, idea of social change um, behind a lot of these technology companies. And so if you know that culture of like the why behind things, right, um, you know, people are angry at the banks, they want to replace the banks, right? Or, you know, things that are unfair or unjust, right? I think, uh, I think that's a great start too. So you can learn just the basics of the technology and then the philosophy behind it. And I think there's a lot of uh, excellent YouTube videos on that as well and resources where you can just learn about the why behind a lot of these companies. Yeah, and can you share your perspective on the world that is possible with blockchain? Like, What, what is that ideal world from your perspective? I, I think I can give a really great recent example, um, but it, it forces me to just introduce what money is really, really quick. I know it's funny, like what is money? But it's actually a very interesting topic. So if you look at money, um, first of all, it's universal, right? Everyone agrees a dollar is a dollar. That's really important, right? The next is like store of value, right? It can actually store value. Like gold used to store value, right? You can store it, you know, for a long time. Um, and that moves into the next example, which is money can also move across time. So for example, if I build a house for you today, right? And you give me money, I can hold that energy and that work. That's basically what it is, right? and bring that into the future with me, right? And be able to plan or, or purchase in the future. And then the last one is, it can be moved across space. So for example, gold is really hard to move. So people stop doing that. And so to be able to transact very, very easily without that slippage is really important. For me, I consider money as a battery. Money is a store of energy that what you did into the future. And that's the, the way I like to look at it. Because now to go back to that example of, you know, my main thing, give an example to everyone, I think, for example, the last year, 30% of all U.S. dollars that have ever existed were printed. Just think about that, for example. Of the entire history of the United States, 30% of all money that has ever been in existence has been printed in the last year. So everyone talking about inflation, that is exactly the reason. So let's get into that. This is a very, very interesting topic. So inflation is about you know 3 or 4% a year, if you believe the government statistics, right? And it can go from 4 to 10%, for example. So when the government prints money, they are diluting your battery, right? They're, they're literally, it's legalized theft. <laughs> it's actually, you know, when your value decreases every year, 
right? Um, your money should be worth the same today as it is in a hundred years, right? And that's a very, very big thing that a lot of people don't realize about the connection with, with inflation. Um, you know, you might ask yourself, why did, why did a can of soda used to cost five cents? Or why, that, why was a house 30,000? 30, 30, because 8% inflation a year over 10 years um, destroys that value. And the next part of that also is, so the result of all of this inflation and all of these problems, right? Um, is rich people or companies go, oh my God, my money is not worth, or it's losing value every year, right? Even in a savings account, you're like, oh, I get 1%, cool, but inflation's 4%, right? So all those companies and rich people take that money and dump it into the stock market or into houses. So if you ask, why is the stock market booming? Why is, you know, why are houses and prices crazy? Because people are using houses as a store of value. People are using, you know, trying to protect their money, right? And so that's, um, that's a big issue. So Again, when we talk about centralization, when the government controls the money supply, right, they can print money, they can adjust, you know, levels, um, they can use it as a sort of a bullying tactic, tactic to other countries, right? The power of the USD or the power of the, of the euro to other smaller countries, right? And so Bitcoin fixes all of that, right? No Bitcoin can ever be created or destroyed. Um, you are in charge of your own money. The government is not. It's basically money 2.0. It is a complete upgrade to our international financial system. And that's just one example of, you know, how it's going to change the world. And obviously the philosophical things that go behind that, because 3 billion people on this planet don't have a bank account. That's crazy. And we take for granted, like, oh, I have a visa card or I got a mortgage or a loan. Most people don't have those things, right? And those are all happening in what you call decentralized finance right now, which is amazing. You can get a loan with crypto in US dollars and nobody knows who you are. You give some collateral, they give you the loan. When you pay it back, they automatically release your collateral. There's no human involved. It's all there. You can give mortgage. You could do basically any financial transaction in the real world on chain and without humans. So I think this is the, the big um, example that I give for the last year of how inflation affects you. And the problem with our money, our, our monetary system, that we need to fix. It's a massive problem. Yeah, we could. I mean, we could do a whole podcast series on on currency, <laughs> valuation, money issues, economics, all of that. Thinking again from you know copywriting standpoint, let's say I, I'm intrigued. I want to get started. If you were starting over again, Joel, you know, as a beginning copywriter or maybe an experienced copywriter trying to break in to blockchain, Web 3.0 you know, all, all this technology, where would you start? Like, is it just a matter of pitching a company and saying, hey, I can help? Or is there something else that you can do to break in? Uh, great question. I would say the community in blockchain crypto right now has is, always been very, very strong. So I would say get in the community, right? Whether it's a, a local group, an online group. Um, once you're in that, you can really just um, network and, and speak to people. Um, Often people are so passionate, they want to help you. You know, like if you ask me a question about blockchain, I can talk for four hours. So just find someone like me, literally, and just be like, what is money? And then I'll talk for an hour. So it's, uh, I would say that's, that's a great start. Um, and I think whether you're experienced or new, um, companies of all sizes right now need people and need um, that, that, you know, that level. And so I think, again, if you um, study the basics and can speak about it with, you know, just the basics with the company, that will get you in the door for sure. If you at least have those basics in place. So you just turned 40. I'm turning 40 soon. Yeah. How did you celebrate the big four or zero? In the best way possible. I removed myself from all humans. So 
I rented a geodesic dome in the north of Portugal, which is where I live. Um, and we went for a week and completely disconnected. So we cooked all our food outside, um, no internet, no phones. Uh, it was in a beautiful garden and we just spent a week just disconnecting and relaxing. So that was, uh, that was my 40th birthday. That sounds amazing. Spoken like a true introvert. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Actually. Yeah. That's the thing I want to get into. Like, yeah. Where's the geodesic dome here by me that I can disappear into? That's. It sounds great. Joel, this has been this has been really fascinating, getting the basics, learning more about this. Um, you mentioned that, you know, there's a really strong community out there. And so, you know, as we wrap, where can people go to connect with you and maybe, you know, mention one or two communities where you hang out and you know, where we might be able to, again, start connecting with others uh, in in the blockchain world. If you want to get into the communities, one of the best things is to join Telegram and also to join Discord. These are the two things that run the backbone of all of these, these companies. Obviously, Telegram for the security and you know just the nerds prefer it. And so literally million-dollar business deals are done on Telegram. I'm not joking. And so uh, you need to know Telegram. It's the best way to join groups on Telegram to learn. Pick any topic in blockchain, and there'll be a group on Telegram. And then the other part of it is Discord. So Discord used to be, or kind of is, it used to be for gamers, right? To be able to connect with each other and, and chat. But now companies use it sort of like Slack. But Discord will have the same thing. They'll have awesome groups. Um, that oh, That's actually how you can do more research too. Is every company will have a Discord channel, right? So you can join that channel and see how active they are, see how the community is. Um, yeah, that's, those two tools I think will, will really help you. And I think uh, connecting with me, uh, you can go to copyverse.io, uh, which is the name of my uh, new copywriting business focused exclusively on Web3 and blockchain and also on LinkedIn, of course. Last quick question. You are in the think tank. We've been lucky enough to hang out with you in the think tank mastermind. For anyone listening who might be considering something like the think tank, what would you say has been you know, one of the more useful benefits to you from the experience so far? First of all, obviously the community. It's so valued to have, invaluable to have, you know, 30 other copywriters that you can just ask, you know, all of your questions, whether it's just confirming your, your, you know, hmm, I should check this to asking about pricing, what people think, uh, getting multiple different opinions. Um, the community is just obviously supportive. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, the other thing I like is actually the, uh, virtual retreats. I think we, you know, Think Tank gets some amazing, amazing speakers. Um, I've learned so much from those virtual uh, retreats um, and also got to meet amazing people, amazing copywriters, um, and obviously got to interact with the group in a more like social way, I guess, um, which has been really good. And I think uh, the third thing about the Think Tank that I love is it's just so easy to access the information. And so if you have a topic that you want to get better at or you want to study or, or these kind of things, it's so easy to go find a video on it or a person to talk to, or a course, or or anything um, related to that, you can just you know learn about those things. Sounds good, Joel. Thank you for giving us an hour of your time and sharing so much about this world that I don't know much about, but am interested in learning more. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thank you, Joel. Before we wrap, let's talk a little bit about blockchain. I feel like this was, you know, it was a mini masterclass in blockchain. I learned, I learned a bit. Um, Rob, what, what, 
resonated with you for blockchain around blockchain? Yeah. So blockchain to me is still kind of like this unknown. Joel did a pretty good job of, you know, giving me the primer and and some of the basics. Um, The most the the thing that really stood out to me though is is how Joel pointed out that the least interesting thing about blockchain is the price or the money, right? And we all understand blockchain as being part of you know Bitcoin, Ethereum, all of these different coins and and currencies that are detached from governments. But it's the opportunity of blockchain to change all of these other industries, I think, that really presents uh, I, I'm going to keep saying opportunity, I think, but opportunities for co- uh, copywriters. You know, we're looking for ways, and we've sort of seen this happen over the last two decades as most businesses digitize themselves. They went from offline to online, so they have online presence. There's massive opportunities for marketers to help businesses make that transition. And I think there's going to be a similar transition as a lot of companies move to these kinds of technologies whether blockchain is the end of this or whether there are going to be other emerging technologies related. I don't know. I don't know that space well enough to, to say, but I do think that there's a massive opportunity for copy, micro copy within apps, within services, uh, you know, helping people understand what it actually does, how it may be more secure, all those things. So it, it definitely is something worth paying attention to. And we may all be doing a lot more in blockchain in the future than we even think we would be today, simply because it may take over the world. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I I think it's fascinating. And when Joel talks about it, I'm fascinated and I lean in and I want to know more. Um, And he's one of the few people, I mean, I'm not in that world either, so I haven't heard a lot of people speak about it, but he's one of the few people where I hear him talk and I'm like, oh yeah, it can change the world. Like, this is great. How do I learn more? And so he really inspires me to jump into that space. As I said in the interview, when I was like, I want to become a blockchain copywriter. Um, I do. I really do. I want this to be my new niche because I think it's so fascinating. And I mean, I like opportunity too. And so when Joel says, hey, if you have one year of experience, you're an expert in this space. And there probably are not a lot of copywriters yet in that space. That's really attractive to me um, because I want marketing to be very easy. I want <laughs> I want less competition. So I'm going to go hang out in that pool where there's like two other copywriters swimming. Um, so it's really appealing. It's definitely worth looking into if if anything in this conversation, you know, perked your interest. Yeah, we, we talked a bit about currency and, and how blockchain is moving into that space or how it's, uh, you know, created these currencies that are unchanged from governments. And it just reminded me that our belief in currencies, whether it's the dollar or the pound or the yen or the euro, whatever, uh, it's a story. It's a story that as a country or as a community, as, as a world, we've all agreed that it represents something. And with the backing of a government or whatever, we're assuming that, you know, it's we've, we've kind of agreed on the story as, as to what it's worth. And that story is a little bit different for blockchain. And uh, it's because it's detached from the guarantee of a government. It feels riskier, at least for a lot of people. Uh, you know, if if I have um, Bitcoin or Ethereum and you know, the story changes, it's not worth as much, right? That's part of why we see these crazy fluctuations in the markets for pricing on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the other the other coins that are out there. But it just reminded me of the power of a story that 
underlies our entire civilization in a lot of ways. And that story is changing with blockchain technology. And I'm fascinated to see where that's going to go. Well, I'll let you know, Rob, um, as I work <laughs> with my clients in the space exactly, and become an expert, I'll keep you updated. Um, okay. And then last for me, I, we talked about turning 40 because I feel like, you know, this sneaks up really fast. I've got until March and I need to figure out a plan because it cannot be lame. And I'm worried that it will be because I am not great at planning my own party. So I'm thinking I'm going to do what Joel did. And I just want to remove myself from humans and the internet and phones and just go to Portugal or somewhere and remove myself. That sounds appealing. So what I'm curious though, Rob, what did you do for your 40th? I can't even remember. remember. Yeah, I can't even remember. I uh I mean I probably we probably just like, I don't know, watched a movie or something. I I have a different approach to birthdays, I think, than you do. Like you take your birthday off and I think you probably do this with your kids too. My wife does it with our kids. Like she wants their birthdays to be the most special day of the year. And I, I mean, my birthday is my favorite day of the year, but I always, I, I like work it. You know, I don't take a day off and go to the movies or anything. This it's is just, where we are different. This is where we are different. Yeah, it, but I, I still think it's like the best day of the year. I love my birthday, but uh, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily mark it in, you know, unique or special ways. So I can, like, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say I can't remember. I might have to ask my wife what I did with my 40th birthday because I don't remember. Yeah, I am curious yeah, to know. Yeah, well, you yeah, just had your birthday and I was like, Rob, it was a Thursday. And I was like, Rob, are you, like, you're not working Yeah, today, you're telling right? me to get off calls. I was like, why are you here? Yeah, yeah. well, I, yeah. Anyway, I guess I clearly put too much pressure on the birthday. But I do think, you know, 40 is a good one. And so I'm taking Joel's advice and going to do what Joel did. That's what I'm doing. Definitely worth celebrating that kind of a milestone. Making it 40 years these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Not all of us do it. <laughs> so yeah, definitely worth celebrating. I'll take it as a win. We want to thank Joel for joining us on the show. If you want to connect with Joel, we're going to link to his website in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. And we did get a very recent uh, review of the podcast. Yeah, we got a new one. It's really short, but from health underscore coach, they said the copywriter club podcast covers a great variety of topics. It's very useful and informative. Thank you for saying nice things about us. Health coach, whoever you are, your reviews do mean a lot to us. So thanks for taking the time to share that. Uh, and if you want to add a review of the show, head on over to Apple podcasts. It's pretty simple to do. Only takes a couple of seconds. If you want to click the four or five stars or maybe a minute or two to add a few words about what you think. Yeah, I mean, we we really would like a review. This is this is it would be really nice. I think it helps. It I don't know. I, I feel like my ego needs a review every, at least every month um, to keep going. We need it. So please give us a review if you want to share. We really appreciate it, and we'll read it in the next episode. And if you haven't checked out our newest blog post in our editorial section of TCC. It's all about everything you need to know to get copywriting clients, build authority, and land speaking gigs on LinkedIn by Hira Osuma. Check it out. Jump over to our website, give it a read, and let us know what you think. We'll link to it in the show notes. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. I was actually listening to a couple of old episodes last week and just reminded how much that 
outro makes me smile. So thanks, David, for putting that Wait, together for us. Wait, we need to get David on this podcast. Yeah, we probably should. That's a good idea. If you like what you heard today, share a screenshot of the episode with your favorite takeaway. Tag us on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or Pinterest, or maybe just text it to a friend to share it with someone. And we appreciate you listening. We will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob. Close.